to the Scriptures. It's a short passage. I've been a minister for about 15 years. I have never preached from Jude before. Jude just really kind of gets the shaft in the Bible. It's the next to the last book. It's a very short letter. It's so short it doesn't have chapters. So as it says Jude 24 and 25, there are no chapters. It's just uh, the last two verses of this brief uh, this brief letter or brief book. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it, it, it's relevant to what we're talking about this morning. About And this has happened since I was in grade school. This has happened since I was a boy. About two, maybe three times a year, I will have... I, I don't, it's not strong enough to call it a panic attack, but I have a, a felt mini-crisis internally about eternity. I've had these since I was a boy. And the thing about if you're around the Bible and you're around the church, you, you traffic in these terms like eternal and forever. You just sort of get used to those, those terms. But just every once in a while, there'll be this mini-crisis when in some small way I'll feel what that means. Because here's, I mean, think about this. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm preaching a sermon right now, and I'm going to try to talk about aspects of eternity. And here's the thing. The sermon might to you this morning be interesting, or it might just seem flat as a pancake, and you're thinking, I cannot wait to go have lunch. But what, however it lands with you, you know that the sermon will end. But eternity never ends. And for we who struggle with control, that's the ultimate loss of control. As I've said before, I've never been to a party that was so great that I'd never wanted it to end. I've never been on a trip or in any experience that was so wonderful that I didn't eventually want it to come to an end. I want, you know, I want things eventually to terminate. And eternity says, well, I never do. What we're going to be thinking about this morning is not only does eternity stretch... When I point to your right, let's let that be the future from your point of view, okay? Eternity is not something that just stretches into the future and will participate in that. All of us will participate in that. But eternity goes back. This small letter is written by Jude... And there's several Judes or Judases in the New Testament, but overwhelmingly the evidence seems to point to this being the Jude who was Jesus' brother. Jesus had brothers and sisters. It references that in the New Testament. This was Jesus' brother. And as he writes this letter of Jude, he is very upset and very concerned about things going on in the early church in his day. Especially, there's all this false teaching and even apostasy. And here you've got this little fledgling church that he has been able to have a front row view to starting out and just even in its earliest years already, things are being communicated in the wrong way. And the content is messed up and people are believing wrong things and they're going off in terrible directions that's going to just shipwreck these people. And he is upset in this letter. And he uses some very strong language. But the amazing thing is, he comes to the end of it. And how does he end it? Does he end it by saying, you know what? The church better get this right 
or the whole thing's going to shipwreck. Love Jude. He's upset. He's exercised about it. And he ends the letter by being fascinated with God. He ends the letter by being fascinated with God. Whoever you are this morning, there are all these different backgrounds here, but I would say especially if you come from a church background, if you come from a background where you have trafficked in these words like uh, forever and eternal and eternity, really our main problem is that there's a word that we traffic in that we don't feel, and that is the word God. And that maybe the antidote to the boredom that you feel right now or the flatness that you feel about the things of God. Maybe the answer is not to read another Christian book that promises some big jolt to your spiritual life. Maybe it is to stop and ask, in some ways, the ultimate question, who is God? If we're here to worship God, who is God? Here's a window. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to read you something that a psychiatrist recorded about an interaction he had with a woman named Charlene who was uh, one, of his, one of his patients. And um, he's writing this from a Christian perspective. But interestingly, Charlene was from a Christian background. She had actually taught Christian doctrine at a school at the collegiate level and came to him in a state of rejecting that, of rejecting those truth claims, of rejecting Christianity. And so he records this interaction. This is after multiple sessions with Charlene. Everything seems meaningless, Charlene complained to me one day. What is the meaning of life? I asked her with seeming innocence. How should I know, she replied with obvious irritation. You're a dedicated religious person, I responded. Surely your religion must have something to say about the meaning of life. You're trying to trap me, Charlene countered. That's right, I acknowledged. I'm trying to trap you into seeing your problem clearly. What does your religion hold to be the meaning of life? I am not a Christian, Charlene proclaimed. My religion speaks of love, not of meaning. Well, what do Christians say as to the meaning of life? Even if it isn't what you believe, at least it's a model. I'm not interested in models. You were raised in the Christian church. You spent almost two years as a professional teacher of Christian doctrine, I went on, goading her. Surely you're not so dumb as to be unaware of what Christians say is the meaning of life, the purpose of human existence. 
We exist for the glory of God, Charlene said in a flat, low monotone, as if she were sullenly repeating an alien catechism, learned by rote, extracted at gunpoint. The purpose of our life is to glorify God. Well, I asked. There was a short silence. For a brief moment, I thought she might cry, the one time in our work together. I cannot do it. There is no room for me in that. That would be my death, she said in a quavering voice. Then, with a suddenness that frightened me, what seemed to be her choked back sobs turned into a roar. I don't want to live for God. I want to live for me, my own sake. It was another session in the middle of which Charlene walked out. I felt a terrible pity for her. I wanted to cry, but my own tears would not come. Oh, God, she is so alone, was all I could whisper. All right, now that is a little, that's a little peek. That's a little glimpse into what some of us would say if we were honest. You know, that, when he said that, that she gave that answer and that it seemed like it was by rote, that it was extracted from an alien catechism, she was quoting from the catechism of our own church. You know, a catechism is a teaching device, question-answer format. The first question in our catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What it's asking is, why do people exist in the universe? What is the meaning of life? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And she knew that was the right answer to the question, and it had nothing to do with reality. As we said, we're in a time of worship. This is not a lecture. This is a component of many parts of this thing that we call the worship of God. But why should we worship God? If we say that He's worthy of all my energy, all my attention, all my fantasies, all my scheduling, all my money of anything I could hope for for any child that I care about. Is that real? Is it true? Let's go back to this question. Who is God? And looking from this doxology from Jude, I want to look at two things. He's the only God and He's our Savior. He's the only God and He's our Savior. All right, first, He's the only God. Now, that should stop and make us ask a question. Why in the world, in the Bible, would He be called the only God? Why would Jude refer to Him as the only God? Because doesn't the Bible acknowledge all these other gods? There's all these other deities mentioned in the Bible. And then all these other deities around the world right now. What, how can you say God's the only God? Well, okay, think about what kind of gods a person can have. And there's only so many routes you can go. You can either worship a person, so you could worship a ruler. You know, there was a, there was a culture of Pharaoh worship in Pharaoh's day in Egypt when the um, Israelites came out of Egypt. It could be a ruler, Caesar. It could be an ancestor. Ancestor worship still goes on. You could worship a person. You could worship a thing. You can worship the sun. You can worship the moon. You can worship fertility. You can worship ambition. You can worship a thing. Uh, you can worship an angel. If you ever see one, you'll, 
want to, apparently, from the responses of people in the Bible. And the New Testament talks about there were people that worshipped angels. Or you can worship bad angels, the demonic. You can worship Satan. Or you can just worship a mythic God that you or your culture invents. Over time, you invent a story, and you invent characters, and you invent an entire background to those, and then you actually give this person or persons or pantheon or beings homage. But there's a common thread in all those. It's easier to see with the myth because the myth never existed, but with angels or demons or the sun or the moon or ambition or fertility or a person. What's the common thread? They all had a beginning. They all started at some point. They all had to be created. Even angels didn't always exist. They had to be created by God. Satan is not the opposite of God because he's a creature. He has limitations. He had a start. But in contrast to all those gods, little g, think about these words. Uh, You know, most of the Psalms are by David. But one of the Psalms is by Moses. It's older than almost all the other Psalms. Psalm 90. And at the beginning of that Psalm, Moses says this, before the mountains were brought forth. Now, what is more permanent than mountains? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I want you to think about what Moses just said. He talks about from everlasting to everlasting. Now, it's the to everlasting that makes me freak out internally two or three times a year. Because for me to be in something, even if it is bliss, the thought of it never ending, and there is no escape from forever, it just kind of pushes me over the edge. In fact, it may be happening inside of you emotionally right now. But Moses says, all right, if that's forever future, what does that mean? That means that there's kind of like this container called forever, and however many trillions of years you put in there, however many trillion sets of trillions you put in there, you never fill the container. That is mind-boggling. But Moses said, God, there was another container. From before molecule number one, from before light, whatever light is, There was another container, and no amount of trillions and billions of years can fill it up. Well, who was there? God was there. Who else was there? No one. And no thing. What does that mean? Does that mean that God was just sitting by Himself in space? There was no space. Is God just sitting by Himself in the dark? There was no dark. He created dark and light. There was no one and no thing forever back. Think about this. And put quotation marks around the word problem. That actually creates a problem for our passage. Because one of the things that Jude says is, 
And this is kind of classic doxology. He's saying, to God be all glory and dominion and authority. But one of the things that Jude says in this doxology is, may that be given to him from before all time. Who's there to give it to him? Before all time, who's there to give him glory? Before all time, who is there for him to exercise authority over or dominion over? There is no one and no thing. So Jude, why did you say that? And I don't know exactly what Jude would say, but I think it would be something along the lines of, look, I, I don't know. But whether there was anyone there to acknowledge that or give it to him, he was there to deserve it. From before all time, forever. Jesus said, this is in John chapter 5, that the Father has all life in Himself. We think that living moment to moment is something we're doing from us. That it just sort of has a power to just carry itself. Nothing can exist. Nothing can be. And certainly nothing can live unless there was this first life to give life. Who gave God life? No one. He is the only God with all life within Himself. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, let's stop there because all that is mind-boggling. What do... What do we think eternal life is? I mean, how do you envision eternal life? Because the way I tend to envision it is it's the absence of whatever is rubbing me the wrong way. Forever. So it's a place where whatever physical problems are healed. Whatever physical pain is ended. Whatever emotional uh, just torn up, tattered damage is, in, is inside of us is made beautifully right. Uh, depression forever ends. Every tear wiped away. Uh, if you're a person who struggles with money, if provision is always a problem for you, it's where provision will forever be lavish and never ending. Now, all those things biblically check out. But is that what eternal life is? You know what Jesus said eternal life is? He said this just a little while before He was arrested to be crucified. It's in John chapter 17. He's praying to His Father. And He says, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God. That eternal life is not simply a future state where everything that we know is different. Eternal life starts now if you know the eternal one. It's not just that you've entered a state that lasts forever, but it's knowing and being connected to the one who already lasts forever and is from forever. But... I left one part out. Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God. Now that sounds like a lot of other parts of the Bible. But he also says this, And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's saying that about himself. 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How can he say that? And, you know, Jude does the same thing. Did you notice that? It's just this is a big, fat God passage. But, but did you hear what he says about Jesus? It says, now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. But then what does he say? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything I'm talking about and all the doxology giving that we can do, this has to be through Jesus Christ. Why is that? And that has to, be with, that has to do with God being our Savior. It's not just that He is the only God. He's, at, he's His people's Savior. Two things here. And I'm going to do these flip-flop from how they are in the passage. First off, that he presents his people blameless. And then second, that he can keep us from falling. He presents us blameless. Jude is saying something that the New Testament, really the whole Bible celebrates, and that is that at the end, every man and woman and child stands before God as you really are. And Jude is saying, when you see this God who is holy, 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 who is a consuming fire, who's called in the prophets the everlasting burnings, plural, and you stand before Him, all the records in Scripture of anyone who got even some kind of reflected glimpse of that, they come unglued. And they say, woe is me. But Jude is saying, one day, God's people can stand there and be blameless. Now, if you have any background with anything in the Bible, and you've got your thinking cap on, you should be asking yourself a question. How can it say that people like us could be blameless when the Bible goes into all this depth about all the things that we could be blamed for? And we should be blamed for Isn't that a lie to say you can stand there and be blameless? Well, there's only only two ways you can really be blameless and it not be a fiction. There's only two ways you can be blameless and it checks out. One would be that you never did anything worthy of blame. And the only person who's ever done that was Jude's brother. That He is the God to whom all glory and majesty and dominion and power are due. In the flesh, He always loved His Father and He always loved other people flawlessly, perfectly, every nanosecond. He never deviated from the law and the prophets once. That's not going to be how we stand before God. So what's the other way? It would be that there's no blame on you because the blame that we generated went elsewhere. Do you know what the gospel is? It went on Jude's brother. And it must have been in a wonderful, strange, surreal, sad, joyful way for him to write this letter. And he starts the letter by calling himself the servant of Christ. He grew up with him. 
He grew up with him. He shared a home with him. He shared parents with him. But to finally realize in some way that I can't completely get my mind around, I grew up with someone who was fully man, but he's fully God. He is the God to whom I'm giving this doxology. And in his humanity, he took my blame so that that blame would never fall on me. Do do, do we understand what that means? That means this. That means that if you have children, and with every passing day, you become more and more aware of the fact that you are not the great parent that you thought you were going to be. And you're seeing even evidence that you are damaging these children at some level that sometimes you can kind of joke about and then at some points really gives you an ulcer. You can stand in all your parenting failures before the perfect father and there is no blame on you. You can stand before one who is so pure and so bright that the angels cover their eyes and if you have misused sexuality but trusted in Jesus there is no blame on you and really here's here's the archetypal sin that the whole room has done is that when we stand before God and we've got this life of decades of waking up in the morning and our feet hitting the floor. And when our feet hit the floor, we did not love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And we did that day after day after day that we can stand there and He can know that in exhaustive detail. And there's no blame. If Christ was blamed for us, we are blameless. That is through Christ. But the other is to keep us from falling. Man, if we think that during the course of the day, our not breaking into just utter, overt rebellion against God, that that is something from us, we have deceived ourselves. Or if we think that it's just something inherent in my own wonderfulness and awesomeness, that I don't just devolve into heresy and just throw orthodoxy under the bus. If I think that's something about me, we have deceived ourselves that it is God, whether it is morals, ethics, or doctrine, beliefs, it is God who keeps us from falling. Then why do people fall? Note that it says He's able to keep you from falling. Or maybe we should ask the question this way. How can I best tap in, participate in His willingness and ability to keep me from falling? It is to keep Christ at the center of everything. To never have this thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ and look at it and go, Wow, He lived the life that I can't live, and I get credit for that, and... Uh, I live this sinful life that he gets credit for. He's punished for it so that I don't have to go to hell. So he went to hell for me on the cross because he got credit. And I go to heaven, which he deserves, and I don't, because I got credit for him. That's great. Now, I think I want to go over here and read theology. Or I think I want to go over here and I want to read some really in-depth studies about Christian parenting. 
That's great to read in-depth studies of Christian parenting. Or that's great to read in-depth studies of Christian reflections on politics. That's wonderful, and we're free to do that. And we need to think deeply about those things. But anytime you find yourself delving into something and Christ and the gospel is not right there in the middle of it, it will take you off the rails. Again, if, if, if you find yourself more and more consumed with your... Let's say if you have children. I know not everyone does. Let's say you're a parent. And more and more you find yourself thinking about how do I parent these children? How do I educate these children? And you read about it and you listen to talks about it. And you get emails about it. And you're on newsletter lists about it. And it's not taking you again and again to Jesus. Then your preoccupation with parenting is going to hurt you. And you can take that to the bank. Or you have become interested in theology, but more and more it's taking you into fascination with this little minute aspect of it, whether it's end times or particulars about studying the church or whatever, and at the center of it is not the Lord Jesus Christ. It will take you off the rails. It'll take me off the rails. That's why we talk about Jesus every Sunday. He can keep us from falling well, what good is all this? I mean, yeah, I don't want to fall, but it really, like, this doxology gives me a lot to think about. It's very depth. I mean, it's very deep. But, I mean, honestly, kind of where I am right now is I don't have enough money to take the Memorial Day weekend vacation I wanted to. Maybe that's all the people that stayed in town, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, but that's where I am in life. I mean, that, that's great. But, I mean, that... When I wake up, that's the reality that I feel. And again, I want you to think about this. You've got this guy named Jude. And he sees all these problems in the church. It's this young, precious thing. It's just now spreading all over the world. But you've already got heretics and false teachers. And it just drives him crazy. But at the end of it, what does he do with that? He expresses, I'm concerned about this. False teachers will be judged. You know, the people reading this letter, you've got to be on the lookout for false teaching and protect yourself from it. But at the end of the day, where this ends is that God is God. And He is fascinating. And that is comforting. That is joy imparting. If you don't have as much money as you want right now, if you don't have a job right now, if you don't feel good right now, what is the right way to respond to that? Is it to, is it to just kind of jab our hands in our pockets and kick the can down the street and be angry? Will that give life? Or is it to be honest about the hardness of things or the hardness of a trial or a season of life and then to kneel down and say, You are God. And whether life feels good or life feels hard, unto you be all glory and dominion and authority and, pa- and uh, power from before all time and now and forever, period. It helps us in the present, but it helps us in the future. And I want to end with this. Um, I can't remember who gave me this. I've, I've used this before, but someone gave me this photocopy... It's a photocopy of a, of a um, you know, like a legal size sheet that was left by his grandmother on top of her dresses when she died. 
because, you know, she knew that when she passed, they would go to find maybe her favorite dress that she, you know, wear in the coffin. And so she left this note in this just, you can tell she has arthritis, this real difficult hand. And, all right, listen to this, please. She had no idea that some guy in Greenville would ever read this. Here's what she writes. At the top it says, burial clothes. Use any dress you want to put on me. If I pass over Jordan in the winter, maybe this one won't do. must have been a summer dress. But it will be all right to put anything you want to put on me. I'm going to have a robe when I get to heaven. A robe of righteousness. And that will surely be a joy. And I won't ever be cold again. Present you blameless. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, exclamation point. I am in heaven, exclamation point. Praise the Lord, two exclamation points. Doxology. I rejoice that my children walk in faith. So many things I wish I had done for you. But thank the Lord He brought you all to Himself. Keep you from falling. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name with all my love. Christians used to talk about dying well. That is dying well. That is doxology, carrying someone so that they might die well. Let's pray that would be our end. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that you plant these things just deep, deep in our hearts. We don't want to spin our wheels like some sort of philosophical discussion about eternity or infinity and be untouched by it, but we we want a felt sense that you are God. And to you may all glory and authority and dominion be now and forever. We ask that this would not only be real right in these few minutes, we pray that tonight before we go to bed or Tuesday morning as we're on the way to work, that these things would be in the front of our hearts and minds because you are being very good to us. We ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.